Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. I'm here with Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. We're actually uh, in person at the Florida Citrus Mutual Conference in Bonita Springs. It's being held uh, in mid-June. So if you hear a little noise in the background, that is because we're sitting outside at a table uh, talking in person. Michael, welcome. All right. Thank you, Frank. And it's good to be down here in Bonita Springs and see the industry uh, really showing up at this meeting this year. Um, It's been a couple of years since uh, Citrus Mutual was able to hold the meeting here because of the pandemic. And and we just heard from Mike Sparks a few minutes ago. Uh, He was filling in for Matt Joyner's running around, uh, getting things ready. But uh, they record probably record turnout for this meeting this year, more than 500 people registered. So it's a fantastic turnout and we're, we're happy to see everybody out here and in person this year as we talk about uh, the industry moving forward. Yes, great to see everybody everybody in attendance. Some of these folks I haven't seen in probably two years. So it's gonna be a great time to get everybody back together in person. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things, we, we sit through a CRDF meeting this morning and one of the things we heard echoed from folks again and again is that, you know, while the industry may be contracting a little bit, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with these challenges with, with HLB. Uh, the growers that we've got now that you see here today, these are the growers who are committed to this. They're in it for the long haul. These aren't investors who are just investing in citrus groves. These are the farmers. These are the growers who, you know, are really going to roll up the sleeves, fight this. And, and, and we're here to support them in IFAS any way that we can. Absolutely. And speaking of that, I know there's been a lot of activity around gibberellic acid. And since we last spoke, there's been some changes to the label. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and, and why it's important to citrus growers. Yeah, yeah, a bit of good news on the label for gibberellic acid. Um, I think everybody's aware that one of our researchers, uh, Dr. Tripti Vashisht, has been working for uh, four or five years now looking at how to use gibberellic acid to improve the health of HLB-affected trees. And, and she's shown really clearly that there's a, there's a great economic uh, impact in terms of uh, increasing tree health, yield, and quality of fruit um, when you're using gibberellic acid. And it's not just one application, it's multiple applications during the fall, um, you know, starting in some August or later, through December or January, depending on the, whether you're talking about Valencias or Hamlins. But um, uh, so what happened is uh, we've been working with the registrants to make sure that the use patterns that we're recommending in IFAS show up on that product label. And so just recently, the, the uh, label for uh, ProJib that Valen has um, was revised and a new label has come out that, that spells out four applications that can be uh, made during the fall months um, that, that really lines up with what our recommendations are in IFAS. We are looking to try to add a fifth application to that label. And so what we're gonna be doing is working again with the registrants and with um, um, FDAX to submit a 24C uh, special local need to, to add one more uh, label or one more application to that label. Uh, but for now, it's really good news because it gives growers the guidance and that flexibility to, to use those products um, as they might want to this fall in their groves uh, to help you know, minimize some of the risks or the, the impacts of greening on the crop. That's great news, and I know, you know, another product that's been uh, looked at quite a bit lately is oxytetracycline, 
and uh, there's research that you guys are doing there. Um, you're trying to get out in front of that and get some information out to growers. Talk a little bit about some plans for that coming up. Yeah, so we, uh, we've had a number of researchers in IFAS been working on um, trunk injection of antibiotics for quite some time. I think it goes back to 2014, probably. So it's we've been, we've been working on this for a, for a number of years. Um, so what what's happening right now? Uh, we're sitting down. We were looking at uh, upcoming seminars like a Citrus Expo in Fort Myers this fall. Uh, one of the things we really want to make sure that that was presented was our work that the latest work on trunk injections with ox, oxytetracycline because a lot of growers are very interested to hear what we're doing and understand where the research is headed. Um, Dr. Uta Albrecht is uh, probably one of the people who's really doing some uh, outstanding work in the field and commercial groves with, with these trunk injections to try to fine tune and see what we can and can't do with the products. She's not available at Expo, but we're gonna go ahead and to get that information out to growers, so they know what we're doing. We're gonna, gonna, gonna hold a Zoom seminar. Um, this is online, uh, July the 22nd. It'll be at 10 a.m. And we hope that growers who have interest in the work that IFAS is doing with these um, trunk injections can tune in then just to get the latest information, you know, stay up to date with what we're doing and, and ask questions of Dr. Albrecht. And uh, I think it's really important for growers to know both what we're doing and, and also some of the pitfalls or potential problems but that we're trying to overcome through research. So again, July 22nd, 10 a.m. by Zoom. And we'll be working with our agents and all the uh, different uh, industry groups to blast out that information so growers know where to, how to sign up and attend that online. Great. And you mentioned the Citrus Expo coming up August 17th and 18th. I know we're heavy in the planning for that. Looking forward to it. Uh, uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, we're, we're working hard trying to get everything lined up, all the, all the educational sessions from IFAS for Expo. But uh, again, I think... If this meeting today in Benita Springs is any indication, it'll be a, a, a great turnout for Expo in Fort Myers this, this, this August, and we just look forward to seeing everybody there. Great. Great talking to you. Good seeing you in person. All right. Thank you, Frank. We're joined now by Brandon White. He is a commercial crops extension agent with the University of Florida, and today we're going to talk a little bit about soil pH and its role in citrus plant nutrition and Brandon, to get us started, let's just talk in general about how important soil pH is when we're looking at things like uh, nutrition in citrus. Yeah, uh, so super critical, uh, I would say in general, for any plant growing in the ground um, or even like water pH, if you're looking at a hydroponic system, um, is is really critical, uh, so you can't really escape it. Um, even if you're growing in an alternate system like hydroponics, but um, but yeah, very critical. So there's 17 essential nutrients that all plants need. Uh, three of those that kind of get free from uh, the either atmosphere and water. Uh, 14 of those, or the rest of them, come from the soil or uh, maybe foliar applications of uh, fertilizer, but usually the soil. Um, and so all four of those um, of those 14, almost all of them are um, dependent on the pH on how available they are to the plant. Um, so there's, um, I assume we'll probably talk about this more in depth as we go, but there's a, a certain range that every plant kind of prefers, and citrus has its kind of um, slightly unique uh, range compared to others um, on, on how those plants, those nutrients are, are available. Um, and so if your soil pH is uh, within range, then those uh, nutrients are available to that plant and they can take it up. 
if it's outside of that range, especially the, the further it gets outside of that range, those nutrients could be there in the soil, even if you've put a whole bunch of fertilizer out, but they may not be available to that plant. They can be tied up because of the soil pH and all different kind of reactions um, and things taking place in the soil. Um, and you could apply more and more fertilizer, um, if, but if you're in that incorrect range, it still may not be able to be um, accessible to that plant. So at that point, it would just be, um, you know, a, an economic waste and uh, just adding nutrients to soil that's, um, in, you know, you're talking about pollution and environmental uh, um, waste as well, or environmental implications, I should say. Right. Well, that's a great uh, segue to the next question for citrus. Kind of what is that uh, sweet spot for a healthy soil pH? Yeah, so the sweet spot, kind of general rule of thumb for most plants is really kind of 5.5 to 6.5, so slightly acidic, you know, 7 being neutral on your pH range of 0 to 14. Um, So just under Seven. Anything under seven would be acidic. Uh, so 5.5 to 6.5 is a is a good range to target for citrus. There is some um, more recent research in light of HLB um, conditions that's saying a slightly narrower range of 5.8 to 6.5 um, is kind of a more ideal uh, range. Uh, but um, but yeah, 5.5 to 6.5. Very good. And. You know, I know irrigation water plays into this uh, some too. Um, how how does that factor in when you're trying to manage pH? Yeah, it, it's a sizable one. Um, that's something that I always recommend growers to check annually. Um, great idea to check soil pH uh, at least once a year. Uh, and with that, I always try to uh, encourage people to send in an irrigation suitability test as well. Um, it's quick, easy, and inexpensive to do. Um, most labs, they charge about the same price for a soil test, um, usually around 40 bucks. So for 40 bucks, you can go out there and flush your well for a few minutes, take a little sample in a water bottle, and send it off to a lab, and they can give you like a full report of your pH and bicarbonates and, um, and other information about your water, um, and then you can make good adjustments from that. So um, pH... Irrigation water can have a big impact on, um, a lot of times it's pretty uh, alkaline, um, has a higher pH in Florida, um, and a good thing to pay attention to is not only the pH of the water, but also the bicarbonates in the water, and a lot of labs do a good job on giving good information, and um, then you can follow up uh, with the lab or with an extension aid or somebody and make those um, modifications to your system, whether you need to uh, treat your irrigation water, or maybe it's kind of right on, um, but whether uh, you would need to make any adjustments there. Um, but getting having it checked is a great place to start. And you said do that at least once a year? Uh, I, if I were a grower, I would do it once a year, yeah, because it can change. Um, you know, our, our wells can pH and and things can can change um, with, like, seasonally, annually um, with irrigation water, so... Um, and then, you know, the more you do these things over time, you can kind of see, like, trends, and you might um, have a better idea of what to expect. Right. And then, you know, if the soil pH is out of out of balance or in the irrigation water, you mentioned there's treatments for that. What are some of the things growers can do to address address problems with pH? Yeah, so typically it's, you know, they have really high bicarbonates, high, high pH irrigation water, and if they're doing something to their water, it's usually because of that, and they're usually acid inject, injecting. Um, 
and that's like sulfuric acid, and there's um, other ways to do that. Um, but they're just decreasing, they're lowering the pH of the water before it even makes it to the grove. Very good. And then yeah. if, if the soil pH itself is out of whack, what are some, some steps there? Yeah, now I'm going to say one more touch, one more thing on the irrigation water. Uh, another great, um, you know, for my people, I cover Lake and Orange County. Uh, not as much of a concern here, but certainly for growers, um, you know, across the state, anyone living near the coast, um, all the more reason to, to check irrigation water because uh, you can get saltwater intrusion from wells and um, and that those implications can have, uh, that can have, even more implications for irrigation water for um, for growing. So um, I just wanted to make that point there. But um, adjusting soil pH, um, that is typically done uh, to increase soil pH. is kind of standard as dolomitic limestone. Um, dolomite is just a, a naturally occurring mine product that um, contains a lot of calcium and um, uh, magnesium, and that can very effectively, it's a, relatively inexpensive, nothing's uh, inexpensive nowadays, but relatively inexpensive compared to other things, a product um, that growers are very familiar with, and that's a great way to increase soil pH. Um, and then decreasing it is commonly done with, um, again, lowering irrigation water um, and then applying elemental sulfur products. Um, uh, another, another thing for people to be mindful of, this one's kind of, Less common, but most um, people are pretty familiar with this, but I think it's one of those things that kind of gets a little forgotten. But our, our fertilizer forms, and particularly nitrogen, uh, can have um, or do have an effect on soil pH, and uh, particularly ammonium-based uh, forms of nitrogen um, have an acidifying effect on the soil. Uh, so that's just another thing for growers to be mindful of. Uh, and that's, again, another good reason to check um, on an annual basis because if you're changing up your fertilizer program and you've switched over to different uh, forms, uh, those can be having an impact on your soil pH. And so um, it's good to kind of keep track of those things. For Typically, it's, it's a little, it's a little um, easier uh, to have to increase um, soil pH because dolomitic limestone, it's... Um, uh, it, the effects last a little bit longer, uh, can just be kind of a little easier. Um, having to constantly lower the pH is a little trickier because uh, applying sulfur products, uh, that effect doesn't last as long. Soil is going to tend to want to bring itself um, back up usually. Um, so it's kind of easier for growers to have to increase soil pH every, every so often instead of having to constantly fight to lower it. Good deal. And, and kind of to wrap up, you sort of mentioned the, the testing um, if if a grower wants to to test either the water or the soil pH, uh, what are some of the facilities where they can they can send that off to? Uh, yeah, so their county agent is a great place to start. Um, if they're not familiar with it, and need some kind of guidance on how to take the sample, um, and then where to send it off. Uh, you, there's a the lab on main campus. Um, you can get a simple pH uh, run uh, just even at your local extension office. Uh, but getting it uh, the more in-depth report for irrigation water or soil nutrient profile that's going to give you your nutrients as well as your soil pH, um, that can be done for the, um, 
the Accenture Lab in Gainesville, uh, main campus, uh, and then there's several um, private labs across the state um, that they can send um, samples to. Excellent. Well, Brandon, I think that'll wrap it up for today. We appreciate you taking a little time and joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'm joined now by Amir Razadzadeh. He is a fruit and alternative crop extension agent in St. Lucie County. Amir, it's getting hot, summertime, dog days of summer out there. So we thought it'd be appropriate to talk about heat stress for humans, workers, you know, out in the groves, in the fields uh, first. But before we do that, I would talk about heat stress on citrus. Um, just tell us a little bit how that can impact the health of a citrus tree when it gets really hot out there. Sure, Frank. Uh, yeah, since we are talking about uh, the citrus trees, you know that the citrus trees are native to subtropical areas, so we, we usually experience the high temperature in subtropical and also the tropical area. And uh, Florida is one of those areas, and, and uh, we sometimes experience the high temperature above 90 degrees. Uh, for a longer time, so it can affect uh, this high temperature can affect uh, you know the different growth stage of citrus trees like a vegetative growth. Uh, it can affect flowering, fruit set, fruit quality, and for example, uh, if we want to talk about the vegetative growth, it can you know you will see some symptoms on uh, citrus trees like a wilted leaves, and sometimes uh, the leaf edge uh, curling, and it's one of the signs of the you know heat stress. And uh, sometimes you see the yellow leaves uh, is another sign, and and it can also affect uh, the flowering of uh, you know uh, citrus trees. Uh, for example, it can affect on the bud differentiation, and uh, sometimes it can uh, you know cause a flowering drop. Also, the fruit sets, fruit drop, uh, and also the fruit quality of the citrus trees. High temperature may, you know, impact the fruit quality, such as size, shape, color, you know, texture, flavor, and also, uh, finally, the nutritional value, because most of the fruits are in uh, Florida, you know, used uh, for processing. So any high temperature during the, you know, fruiting, uh, you know, a period, it can affect the taste of the fruits and also the juice. Very good. And, and what can growers, if anything, can they do to mitigate the heat stress in citrus trees? Yeah, thanks for weather forecast today and because, you know, weather forecasts are very precise nowadays and growers can uh, you know, get to know about the forecast at high temperature 10 days before uh, the, uh, in the summer. Uh, but the, unfortunately, we cannot move our citrus trees when the temperature is high. And also, we cannot provide a shade for citrus trees because we are talking about, for example, 100 acres. But what we can do as a grower is that uh, we, we have a plan before uh, we face the high temperature. For example, uh, you know, uh, irrigating in the morning or during the evening uh, to reduce the evaporation loss is very effective because the tree can, uh, you know, increase the evaporation uh, in a high temperature, especially in the summertime. And, uh, and it's very important, especially for the uh, young trees, because they don't have the fully ex established root system. So 
that's why they need uh, the frequent and more constant uh, irrigation. Uh, so uh, because of that, the sprinkler or drip irrigation system is very effective. Uh, and for a you know, larger scale citrus grower, especially the irrigation sensor is very important because you cannot manage the thousand acres just by scouting and you know, uh, take a look at the soil. So if you have irrigation system, you know that the, uh, you know, uh, the soil is dry now and the system will automatically start irrigation. Also using mulch is very effective in high temperature. Uh, and uh, the high temperature also can affect the trees that you know have a nutrition and nutrient deficiency. So it's better to have a, a plant for better, uh, you know, fertilizer program during the hot, uh, hot summer. And we also recommend that uh, citrus growers to avoid pruning during a stress period because it can affect uh, and you know it can increase the sun penetration to the inside of the trees. And finally, also, we always recommend that recommend the growers to avoid using pesticide during the hot temperature because it can also burn the leaves, especially in the midday and also during the summer. Now, let's turn to the human side. You know, people are out working in the groves. What are some of the signs or symptoms that people may experience when they're overheating or getting too hot? Yeah, well, uh, high temperature. You know, you know that we have the more complex, uh, you know, system than plants. So there are so many factors that you know cause the heat, uh, heat stress in our body. For example, uh, you know, uh, ex, uh, exposure to the high temperature of above 90 degree uh, in summer can cause the heat stress. But heat stress uh, also cast, uh, you know, divided to. Uh, heat exhaustion and heat cramps that are some mild, uh, you know, uh, effect of heat stress. But uh, the, when we expose to the high temperature, higher temperature for a longer time, we can, uh, you know, experience the heat stroke. So uh, there are so many signs and symptoms of uh, heat uh, exhaustion and heat cramps, like, uh, you know, uh, like a headache, dizziness, uh, you know, fainting, weakness, or uh, sometimes irritability or confusion, uh, nausea and vomiting. And if the uh, exposure is longer and uh, or to the higher temperature, a heat stroke may happen. It's, uh, you know, uh, the most serious heat illness in uh, is heat strokes, and the symptoms uh, is maybe... Uh, the person may be confused, and or maybe he can he is unable to think clearly, and sometimes pass out, collapse, or also seizure. And sometimes even uh, in a heat stroke, person uh, body cannot manage the temperature of the body and just locked in a high temperature, and it's unable to lower the temperature of the body. So in that case, it's better to uh, call 911 and. Uh, you know, get immediate help. Yeah, and you don't want to don't want to risk that for sure. Um, yeah. You know, what are some ways that, that people can manage heat stress? I mean, obviously, drink a lot of water, stay hydrated. But what are some other tips? Right. Uh, well, the, the better option is uh, for employers is better to have a prevention program. 
before starting the summer because uh, we, we live in a hot, you know, high temperature area or high temperature climate in Florida. So we know that in summer we have a high temperature. And also better to train our employees and the workers to how to, you know, manage the high temperature uh, before starting summer. But, you know, if we want to talk about in detail, uh, you know, the, the best option is, as you said, provide a lot of cool water for workers. At least one pint of water per hour is needed. And uh, also, uh, especially in summer, it's better to modify work schedule for our workers. So for a heavy work, it's better to uh, be done in the early morning and also in the afternoon, not in the midday. And uh, sometimes in summer, it's better to gradually increase the work loads uh, uh, from starting the summer until the uh, late summer. And uh, also... It's better to just move the workers uh, to the cooler and shaded area for some, if it's uh, possible. And uh, so all of them is just prevention and the program, the plan that we have before uh, heat stress happens. So what if uh, the heat stress happens? So again, it's better to train our workers. If, ha if something happened like a heat stress to our workers, it's better to move the workers to the cooler or shaded area. It's just remove the uh, out, uh, outer clothing and also provide the fan and mist uh, for workers. Cool water is very important. And uh, again, if something like a heat stroke happens, uh, so it's it's out of the you know help of the colleagues and in that case it's better to call 911 and uh, get the help from them. So you know growers need to have a plan it's not something that you know you just address as it happens you need to have a plan in place and follow that plan to make sure the workers stay safe. Yes uh, yeah you know uh, as I said uh, you know uh, temperature in Florida gets very high in summer and uh, for you know, experienced growers, they know that it's going to happen uh, all the years, and uh, especially when it start, summer starts, and the growers need to work outside. So uh, it's their responsibility to provide all uh, everything to just avoid heat stress for their workers because it can cost a lot for them. Thank you, Amir. That was some great information. Appreciate you joining us for the podcast and uh, stay cool out there. Yeah, thank you so much, Frank, for inviting me for podcast. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.